Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew, Howdy, and TJ. Hello. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPEX, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPEX and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. After celebrating 50 successful orbital launches last month, SpaceX is aiming to increase that count by roughly 10% in just under a month and a half. However, it's important to remember that it hasn't always been smooth sailing for the space launch company. NASA released its public report on CRS-7 mishap detailing the main technical fault as well as additional technical info about Falcon 9 designs. We'll also be discussing comments from this year's Satellite Show, or Sat Show, 2018, from major space launch executives. You can find links to all the tweets and resources that we used in making this episode at our blog, blog.spexcast.com. All right, guys, let's start with CRS-7. Um, rest in peace. CRS-7 is the Falcon 9 launch in June 2015 that was intended to carry Dragon to the International Space Station. And on flight, there was a problem with Falcon 9, and it disintegrated in midair. This launch was doubly sad because it was carrying the uh, new docking mechanism, uh, Crew Dragon and Starliner, which SpaceX had to launch again. And Phil helped build the Dragon that blew up. It wasn't my fault, trust me. Uh, so yeah, and, and the, the Dragon was lost, um, so that kind of sucks. At the time, SpaceX went through and, and worked with NASA to look at the telemetry and troubleshoot and make sure that this problem didn't happen again. And we have talked about the struts that failed in the past. So here we are, about two years later, three years later, wow, um, and we get a full documented report from NASA that explains not only the technical faults that happened, but also NASA's recommendations for SpaceX. So um, this is a publicly available document. You can find the PDF online. We'll have it linked in our blog notes for this episode. The first technical finding, and of, there are four of them, the first one that is laid out is a design error, which I thought was interesting. So the first technical finding is a design error. The quote from the report says, the use of an industrial grade 17-4 PHSS, or precipitation hardened stainless steel, casting in a critical load path under cryogenic conditions and flight environments without additional part screening and without regard to manufacturer recommendations for a 4 to 1 factor of safety represents a design error directly related to the Falcon 9 Flight 20 CRS-7 launch failure as a credible cause. So this means that the manufacturer provided this stainless steel part and said, to meet your four to one factor of safety, you need to use more of these struts instead of just one. You can't just use one and have it be safe. But in the design, they did only use one. In the press releases and stuff um, at the time, SpaceX indicated that, you know, this was a bad part, the manufacturer you know, they're talking to the manufacturer. They think that the design is fine. And, you know, this this happens. They check 100,000 parts. It's a, they have 100,000 of these struts on the ship. So they only check, you know, 
a percentage of those because they can't check all of them to inspect for inspection. So it seems like, you know, this is just, you know, an unfortunate accident. But here it shows that this is, you know, it goes deeper than just being an accident. It's actually a design error. What did you guys think about that? Well, I think it's a, the, I think there's a fundamental disagreement between SpaceX and NASA between whether it's a design error versus a manufacturing error or defect. Uh, so when the initial investigation closed and NASA actually handed uh, SpaceX a private report, so this is the public-facing summary we're getting several years later, uh, they talked about how a strut that was designed to hold a helium tank within the second stage broke and the helium tank shot up, sprayed uh, helium, which overpressurized the tank, causing it to explode. And SpaceX said that we have this strut that's rated to something like 10,000 pounds of uh, force and it failed at roughly 20% of that, so 2,000 pounds. So they had... Uh, in their design, a factor of safety of under flight loads, we expect this much stress on the strut. Our, our strut is two times stronger or four times stronger than that. It's safe to just use the one or the few that connect the tank. And when we get this part from the manufacturer that's supposedly certified for that rating, it failed. And so SpaceX is blaming the manufacturer. However, NASA in this is saying, no, the manufacturer had a clause that said you need to have a 4x factor of safety, uh, which SpaceX didn't uh, include in their vehicle. Uh, as a side note, uh, in aerospace engineering and specifically in rockets, uh, they don't have, I don't think you'd ever see a 4x factor of safety. They're very close to the material margin of what you can engineer. So stuff like 1.2x factor of safety or 1.4x is what you usually see uh, because these things are on such a bleeding edge. And if you have 2x or 4x more structural, uh, structural rigidity or factor of safety on a rocket, that has a huge detriment to the performance of the rocket because you're trying to stay on that bleeding edge. But anyways, back to the strut. NASA says that you used the strut wrong, and even if the strut, yeah, the strut was defective, then if you had followed the manufacturer's recommendations, if you had designed the system differently, a design error, this wouldn't have occurred. Yeah, in addition to the technical findings, the report also identifies technical recommendations, which is NASA saying, okay, here's the problem. Now, we think you should do this. And the recommendation tied to the de that design error, or what they um, describe as a design error, is that um, additional attention warranted for evaluating design application using commercially sourced parts. SpaceX should apply particular emphasis to understanding manufacturers' recommendations for using commercially sourced parts in flight-critical applications. So basically, they said, SpaceX, you dropped the ball. Pay more attention. Which is a fairly, yeah big slap on the wrist or a pretty a big finger pointed at SpaceX. NASA's pretty yeah. much called them out on this. And there's always been that sense that SpaceX has been doing things quickly and, and they they need their engineers to, to push things out um, as fast, fast as possible. Loose. 
Yeah, so they aren't they don't they don't take the time that larger government more traditional government contractors take. Although, you know, I can't say that for certain. That's just the sense you get from from SpaceX. That that's the kind of startup feel that SpaceX has always had around it. So maybe this confirms that. And it's interesting to see that their technical recommendation is pay more close attention to commercial part provider specifications. But the actual changes that we saw, uh, one, uh, that commercial provider got dropped and they moved to in-house struts made of Inconel, uh, which is a high-strength alloy. So they upped the factor of safety on that part even higher than it was before. By using and a different material instead of more exactly. steel ones. And they also switched from batch testing, where the manufacturer is testing their parts, most likely in batches, to meet a certain spec. And then SpaceX receives batches of parts, and they test one out of every thousand or one out of every 10,000 to see if they meet that spec, to then switching to every single strut that goes into a Falcon 9 being individually tested that it meets loads. Uh, it's, it's better to, to have that extra cost and extra time penalty in production than to have the extra mass penalty in using more of them exactly which is this is why space is expensive because inconel is a much more expensive material than stainless steel is even though the the steel was precipitation hardened which means it has to go through a heat treating process but it's it's not too uncommon whereas inconel is much more expensive Okay, so yeah, there were three more uh, findings and, and a couple recommendations to go along with it. One of them was uh, the use of commercially procured wire ropes to provide structural support to the liquid oxygen transfer tube assembly without regard for manufacturer's caution to specify pre-stretched ropes in a length-critical application. So um, this is a general finding, not directly related to the launch failure. That's what the report says. They started so they started their investigation and they investigated all the different possible causes and NASA f settled on the struts and SpaceX agreed except for why the struts failed. Um, and then in their investigation they found other things that this isn't the cause of a failure but this is something that you need to fix or uh, is something that we're not happy with that you should fix. Yeah, so the, the wire ropes that talk about the LOX transfer tube assembly, uh, that's directly talking about uh, when the helium tank ruptured and you had exposed piping, the piping also became unsecured and allowed uh, gaseous helium to be dumped into the second stage tank. So it's something that's related where if it's kind of following through the fault tree where you try to find the root cause, but in order for a disaster to happen, not just the first domino has to fall, but every domino until the critical failure also has to fall. So there's things that this isn't the fault, but if this had been better or stronger, the end result would have been less disastrous. And this has the same recommendation as the design error where NASA once again said, you know, since this was a um, commercially sourced part and the ma manufacturer had recommendations that you didn't follow, you need to pay closer attention. Yep, but the last technical finding, TF4, uh, is really interesting because it ties into what we talked about on a prior episode 
about the Starlink uh, networking. So uh, with TF4, uh, it's a general finding, uh, and it says SpaceX's new implementation for Falcon 9 full thrust flights of non-deterministic network packets in their flight telemetry increases latency, directly resulting in substantial portions of the anomaly data being lost due to network buffering in the stage two flight computer. Network buffer? So they had lag on their flight computer? Like video game lag? <laughs> what is this? What is... Why are they using network buffering? So it's very similar to network lag, but um, it's just a different way of doing things. So on many traditional rockets, they have direct wire connections between sensors and the computers. And if you've ever dabbled in hobby electronics and hobby sensors, uh, there's many different protocols and formats, but there usually is... Uh, power wire, ground wire, and then data line. So there's multiple wires per sensor to send data. And when you have to stretch those 100, 200 feet in the minimum case, uh, that's a ton of metal wiring in your rocket to make the whole thing heavier. SpaceX uses Ethernet, which is a commercial standard. It's a eight eight wire braided pair uh, wire that is in pretty much everyone's homes and commercial businesses and has a standard um, snap-in jack uh, kind of setup. And they use that to connect their sensors and to their computers. And from this finding of using non-deterministic network packets, uh, while that sounds kind of futuristic and new age, uh, what that means is they're using internet protocol. Uh, when your computer sends packets, uh, you're not guaranteed for those packets to go on the same exact path at the same exact time. They go out to a router, and that router has an idea of how to get um, packets to a certain destination, and it forwards them to the next router, which will forward them to the next router, and eventually they traverse the network and get to their location. Uh, and so you're not guaranteed that it'll hit the every packet in a delivery will hit the same routers in the same order at the same rate. And that's great for a worldwide network of computers, but uh, that introduces latency. And so what this says is that during the second stage anomaly, packets got sent from sensors and microcontrollers to the flight computer that would actually record those to some kind of black box or send it over the radio. And because they weren't a direct wire link, you're no longer working at the speed of uh, electricity or information over a wire. You're now including network latency and header overhead and things like that. And for something that can happen in a split second, having, you know, 50 milliseconds of ping or 100 milliseconds of ping as we kind of consider it uh, in our day-to-day -day lives can mean massive amounts of data doesn't get recorded. Does this mean that since um, here it says a non-deterministic network packets, does that mean that even if some of the information has received, it could be like corrupted or garbled? It really depends on on what protocol they're using. So with TCP, in an ideal stance, uh, TCP will send packets, 
and the receiver will know the order those packets are supposed to be in. And if they don't receive all the packets, say they get lost or space rays flip a bit and it's a corrupt packet, the requester will request a new version of that packet and eventually it'll get back to the endpoint. Um, and so in that case, you're given enough time, files should be transferred completely with no errors and packets have a checksum. Another popular networking system is UDP. If UDP, a source and a destination, uh, there is no error checking. So the source will send packets uh, and those can arrive in any order and there is no option to go back and request a missing packet. Uh, the receiver gets what it gets from the client or the source and the idea is that by the time you get the data and realize you're missing some and request it and it comes back, that data is out of date. So a very popular version of this or use case for this in our own lives is video streaming. So if you've ever done a Twitch stream or a YouTube video, if you're watching a video and you're sending streams or frames of video over the network, uh, if you miss a frame, one frame out of 30, it's not the best experience, but you're most likely not going to notice it. And you would rather get the next frame rather than a frame from one second or five seconds ago, right? Um, and so in that case, UDP makes a lot of sense. Just send the data as fast as possible, as little overhead as possible, because I need the data now and I need to present it now. Now, to be fair, we have no idea if they're using TCP or UDP or maybe they have their entire their own protocol, which they've done their own optimizations and trade-offs on. Uh, we just don't know what uh, networking system they're using but they are using a router-based packet networking system. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems kind of um, clear to me from, from that breakdown of the different types of protocols that exist that using these network protocols to transfer data and send data could be more robust in the flight case as long as it doesn't blow up and <laughs> the stream is inter interrupted, which is exactly what happened here. Um, and it... The technical recommendation from NASA was that SpaceX needs to rethink new telemetry architecture and greatly improve their telemetry implementation documentation. This seems pretty, uh, not stiff. This it seems pretty like strong of a statement to me. And what it, it appears to me is that NASA is kind of kind of had the same conversation we just did. You know, like okay. We sort of understand what's happening, but maybe the documentation wasn't there to pick apart and actually figure out what was actually going on. Like stuff, information got lost. And I feel like NASA, to NASA, that's like one of the worst things that could happen, especially during an investigation. Yeah, to me, it sounds like it's there were data was missing because of this issue that TJ just described, the potential cause. Um, and the fact that data was missing made their investigation a lot harder. So that's what this last point seems to be to me. With with no documentation to figure it out. Correct. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how SpaceX took this feedback and what changes they made because uh, their networking um, telemetry infrastructure allows them a lot of really great capabilities. 
So the Falcon 9 has more sensors and more data points than any other rocket because you can have a large number of individual sensors taking many, many readings. And that data doesn't all have to be hardwired into a computer. So instead of having 10,000 wires for the thousands of sensors you have connected into one computer with massive wiring harnesses, you can do a distributed network where you have sensors that connect to a router and then a single connection from that router to another a router and then to the computer. And you can kind of spread out the wiring closer to the sensors. So transitioning that to a more traditional system where everything is connected through direct linkages, yes, it's going to be faster and it solves for that edge case of when things do go wrong, but it makes it a lot harder in the general case to have the sheer volume of sensors and the volume of data. I hope we get more information on how the telemetry architecture has changed in the past two years. One piece of speculation that when you have a distributed network like this and you want to decrease latency is uh, if you've ever played an online video game, if you choose the servers in China or Australia, you're going to have terrible, terrible ping because they're physically so much farther than you. But if you choose a server that's in your time zone or in your state, you suddenly have much, much shorter ping. If they had data recorders, uh, whether they're black boxes or even the telemetry radios, closer on the network to where the sensors are, suddenly those packets don't have to do one, two, three hops to get to the place where they're saved. If they just do a single hop and then they're saved, that would cut down on that lag time between data generation and data capture. So that would be one way to solve this uh, requirement for uh, closing that lag time. But again, that's complete speculation. We don't know how exactly the sensors and computer are architected now. We just read basically the executive summary and, and discussed it. The, the full report is nine pages long, and it's got technical diagrams of these different parts that failed um, and lots and lots more details. We'll have a link to that on our blog. The next story, um, before we get into SAT show, is just a little bit of piece of SpaceX news. Uh, what's been deemed the SpaceX steamroller. We've known for a long time how busy their manifest is. And right now, SpaceX has moved to try to launch five Falcon 9s in one month. We've seen launch rate from not only SpaceX, but in general, uh, flight rate has increased from different launch pads. For example, a couple weeks ago, we saw two launches from the Cape in less than 24 hours. So uh, SpaceX continues to push that. So that's more than one launch per week um, in a single month. Yeah, so uh, if this schedule holds, uh, which we're recording in mid-March, and the first launch on this kind of spread is scheduled right now for the 29th of March, we could see five SpaceX uh, launches in a single month. So that starts up with Iridium Next 5, that's launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Then, switching to the East Coast, CRS-14 will launch from SLC-40 on April 2nd. 
And there'll be another SpaceX launch three days later on pad 39A, the Bangbadu-1 satellite. Uh, then uh, a relatively fast turnaround of 14 days launching NASA's satellite TESS, uh, which is an exoplanet ex exploration satellite on April 16th from SLC-40. And then potentially the next Iridium Next flight, uh, Iridium Next 6, in late April uh, from Vandenberg. And so that's going to be a record for number of launches in a month, but also a very tight turnaround uh, between CRS-14 and uh, Bang Badu-1. Which that April 5th launch will be the first Block 5. Yes. It's happening. Woo. New paint jobs. Everyone's got to update their infographics and models and all that fun stuff. So I think that that this this push, this dramatic increase that we've seen in the SpaceX launches is something that the industry is now starting to react to. And that's something that got highlighted at SAT Show 2018. So there's a ton of really awesome stuff that happened at uh, Satellite 2018, which is kind of the industry standard conference for uh, commercial satellites. Uh, last episode, we covered the new Space Age conference, which was all about new space and lots of CubeSat providers and, and newer companies. Uh, Satellite 2018 is the established players, and it is, I think, two orders of magnitude larger. There's close to 15,000 attendees. Yes, and interestingly, these big-name executives were all speaking kind of back-to-back -back or, or next to each other on different panels and such. As we go through these, I just want to thank Jeff Faust from Space News for all of his tweets, keeping us up-to-date basically in real time with what was happening, even though there weren't any live streams of, of most of these going on. Yeah, so the people on the panel included Bob Smith, who is the CEO of Blue Origin, Tori Bruno, the CEO of United Launch Alliance, Gwyn Shotwell, who's the president and CEO, COO of SpaceX, Ko Agasawara, who's the vice president and general manager for Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, so main contractor for the Japanese space program, and Clay Mowry, the vice president of sales, marketing customer experience for Blue Origin. Phil, do you want to go rapid fire through these? Yeah, so uh, we just pulled out a bunch of these. Most of them are in order of what happened. Um, so Ko Ogasawara from Mitsubishi said that their H3 development was completely on track to do 10 launches a year, two, which would be two in three weeks of one another. Um, and that's JAXA, I believe, right? Yeah. So this is really interesting. Uh, there's a follow-up tweet, which is, we need two months between launches having only one pad has been an issue on Cadence. With next-gen H3 rocket, we'll have two pads at the Tanegashima site. So it's I think it's really interesting to see this push for having higher capacity and more bandwidth for launches, but also a tighter turnaround. We just talked about SpaceX with their tight turnaround. Uh, thing that's been happening in Cape Canaveral has been the Air Force is trying to accommodate 24-hour turnaround in the range. Um, so just kind of be able to do more launches more quickly uh, to handle the increase in volume of satellites. Moving on to a comment by Gwen Shotwell, there will be significant overlap between Falcon 9, Heavy, and BFR given the effort required to develop the Falcon vehicles 
and getting government certifications. So while all these different uh, vehicles are in different stages of the process for which payloads they can launch, you know, some of that capability might be shared just based on which vehicles available at the time. Yeah, it's always good to see this because um, the second BFR announcement uh, at ISE 2017, Elon mentioned that we, they were going to phase out Falcon 9 and the Falcon family and switch everything to, over to BFR. And that caused some concern in the industry because uh, Elon says BFR is coming relatively soon. They have payloads that are launching in Falcon 9. Some of them are scheduled five years out. And uh, not many people want to be on the first launch of a brand new rocket. And so uh, Gwyn Travel's come in playing damage control a little bit of saying, no, like, we'll be flying Falcon 9 for a long time. Uh, we're just kind of slowing down, stopping development now that Block 5's done. And uh, once BFR is not only operational, but has done all the test flights, has done, gone certified for different payloads, then we'll probably phase out Falcon 9. So mm -hmm. it definitely helps calms the nerves, especially of the industry-established players who are launching satellites of $100 million, $300 million. Uh, they're somewhat adverse to risk. Speaking of the customers and, and calming their nerves, Gwen Shawell also commented on customer acceptance of, of reflight and stuff. She said, block upgrades are behind us now. We can get cadence up. Nine flight-proven first stages launched so far, and half of this year's flights will use flight-proven stages. Customer acceptance is happening faster than we thought. So that means that, like as you said, people are becoming more comfortable with um, how SpaceX is running their business. SpaceX's different tactics are being more accepted, including their flight-proven stages. Yeah, and, and Gwen Shotwell's mentioned in the past how surprised she was about how quickly acceptance happened. Uh, obviously, you know, the first customer... Uh, SES, you know, they got a pretty significant discount for flying on a reuse booster. Uh, but they've done a really good job in the marketing side of flight-proven boosters. And there's just been that general market acceptance. NASA will be flying on reuse boosters and reuse dragons. Uh, commercial customers will be flying on reuse boosters. And there's just a ton of momentum behind that. And ideally... A year and a half, two years from now, once reuse uh, development costs have been paid off, we could see the nominal price for Falcon 9 launch decrease even further than the 10% discount we currently see. And one to two years from now is 2020s, which is bringing a lot of new vehicles in. That's their expected um, introduction time frame. Um, Stefan Israel from Arian Space said that they're on track for the first launch of Arian 6 in mid-2020. Uh, the critical design review is this summer. So um, the mid-2020s, we're going to see um, a lot more on Vulcan. We're going to see Arian 6. According to Elon, we're going to see BFR. <laughs> uh, what else are we going to see? You know, like New Glenn. That's, you know, three years from now, five years from now, um, pretty soon. It's good to see that everybody's still on track. Yeah. And uh, Stefan Israel also mentioned uh, the Arian 5 and how it's been performing, uh, saying, We maintained our market share in 2017 in a tough environment. Arian 5 January anomaly fully corrected. 
and we'll announce next Ariane 5 flight in the coming days. So we dove into the Ariane 5 flight anomaly on a prior episode, um, and the solution seemed relatively straightforward, considering it was not a hardware defect in the vehicle, but an operational defect. Uh, so it's exciting to see that rocket come back into operation and to you know see that pace pick up again. So Tori Bruno uh, also made a few comments. Uh, he said he was pretty excited to shift attention to commercial market after helping U.S. government avoid a serious crisis in space with Space Launch. Uh, with the follow-up being, our first decade's job was to fly for U.S. government. Now we can shift our attention to commercial marketplace. Now we market directly to commercial customers. So he's he's steering the boat from only paying attention to the government to finding a a spot in the commercial marketplace. And I think um, one thing to remember here is that the commercial marketplace was not very big a couple of years ago, right? At least it didn't seem like it was. Well, it was, we haven't seen the commercial marketplace grow or shrink much. Uh, let's kind of destruct uh, what these tweets mean. So he talks about avoiding a serious crisis in space. Uh, so that's important to understand that is to go to the genesis of United Launch Alliance in 2006, uh, Boeing with Delta and Lockheed Martin with Atlas uh, were in kind of a tough situation. And because of a market bubble that had burst in the early 2000s, uh, the companies had a lot of capability, but not a lot of demand for their rockets. And so the U.S. government, for a variety of reasons, decided to merge them together and to prop them up financially so that it could have a de dedicated domestic launch service and to have a backup rocket in case, for example, an anomaly like what we saw with Ariane 5 takes a rocket out of service for a few months. You still have a completely separate rocket uh, that wouldn't have any shared technology that you could rely on. And so that's kind of the genesis for ULA. They've really been the key player for U.S. government launch. Uh, and as we're seeing in the market with the recent uh, SpaceX GPS-3 communication satellite contract, uh, SpaceX successfully sued the U.S. government for the right to compete for national security launches. Uh, we have other commercial competitors, New Glenn, mentioning uh, potential flights of, of government payloads. That government market is now getting split amongst all the other U.S. competitors that we have now. Uh, and that means... In order to have a robust business, you have to go out into commercial space. And that's pretty much been the domain of Airane Space and the Airane 5 and ILS, which is uh, legacy Russian launchers. And we've seen the transition over the past five to 10 years of ILS launches having a pretty sharp decline, Airane Space having a slight decline and uh, SpaceX and ULA trying to pull in more of those commercial launches to the United States. Um, so we're going to have actually a blog post that's going to talk about this kind of changing dynamic over time and to see how those launch providers are kind of competing against each other and how the market's going up and down. Uh, but that's just kind of the reality that any launch provider has to deal with nowadays. Okay, um, we'll move on to another comment by uh, Bruno. Lots of Vulcan investment is not ULA money, but investment by the supply chain. 
Not only are we betting on future product development, but so are they. So uh, what do they mean by the, the supply chain investing? Is that like um, Vulcan, uh, like they're contracting out people to help build this rocket and saying to the contractors, hey, we need this new technology. So those um, contractors, subcontractors are also investing in their capability. Yeah, and a lot of them tend to be relatively small companies when we compare them to something like ULA or SpaceX. These manufacturers that provide the parts for rockets um, tend to be relatively small and they need to, if they need to invest in new manufacturing equipment or new technology so that they can provide the next generation of what's needed, in, in this case for Vulcan, then they're kind of, they're sinking a lot of their capital into prepping for the need of this rocket, which is a risk. Yeah. If ULA says we're going to, in ULA's position, we're closing down Atlas, we're phasing out Delta, and we're going to shift everything over to, to Vulcan, uh, they can give projections of we're going to have this many launches per year. We expect to have be launching Vulcan for the next N number of years. And they can go to their supplier and say, look, like right now you give us a special part on the Delta rocket and we launch a handful of those a year. What if we could double or triple the number of parts that we buy from you? Could you increase your production or reduce your cost? And that way the contractors get a more guaranteed stream of business. They get more volume uh, and ULA gets cheaper costs for all their parts. And the final cost of a rocket launch is the every cost of every part that goes to the rocket plus all the assembly costs that the launch provider does plus its service costs. So if they can drop the itemized cost of a rocket down 10%, 20%, that has a big impact on the final price they have to sell to a customer. Okay, uh, let's move on to a few comments that were made about um, small launchers and that market. Uh, Shotwell said, market is not just demand, it's demand with money. A lot of small sat guys don't have much money, that's why we ended Falcon 1. But with Constellation replacements, small launchers may find a market. So this highlights that, you know, just because somebody wants, a lot of people want to launch stuff, doesn't mean the dollar signs are there. And I think that's, um, you know, that's one of the reasons CubeSats and stuff have been secondary payloads forever. Because it's cheap, but you can't have it up until now, up until very recently, there hasn't been enough cash flow in there to make it worth it for people to go after these small, low, low, um, not low volume, these small uh, vehicles and launches. Uh, it's important to note that with a small launcher, the total cost is low. And we've seen some pretty impressive low launch costs with Rocket Lab, but the per kilogram price is very, very high. And so you don't get a benefit from the economies of scale that a large rocket brings you. And so, yes, there's more capability, there's more uh, opportunities to launch. But if small staff providers don't have the cash to pay, you know, $5 million for a launch, then there's not going to be any customers. So it's a really interesting kind of uh, catch-22 where you have to have satellites in orbit to generate money, but you need significant chunks of money to put satellites into orbit, even with these small launchers. Mm -hmm. And these 
larger launch providers, this greater mass to orbit, like SpaceX and ULA, um, Bruno made the comment that they see small launch vehicle as complementary to our larger vehicles. We deploy constellations, and these smaller launchers can replenish them. So that's what the big guys are looking at, these smaller companies such as Rocket Lab, who can launch uh, replacement satellites for these constellations which are being developed now. Yeah, I definitely think that's a like a really good niche to have. Like I can see that kind of scaling up, especially in the next few years when a lot of satellite constellations start to um, go up with OneWeb uh, ready to launch very soon, Starlink uh, in the next five or so years. Uh, there's going to be a ton of satellites and it's nice to be able to launch 10 of those at a time or 100 of those at a time, but sometimes when you just when one goes down, if you can just launch one back up, uh, that's a better use of funds. Speaking of OneWeb, um, they actually gave us some more information at SatShow. Um, OneWeb gateways dis- system ships, 55 of them are being built with multiple tracking antennas to support operations and handoff of higher speed user traffic to and from the satellites plus custom switching complex, outdoor modems, and power amplifiers. Each one is able to handle 10,000 terminal handoffs per second. Some cool new technical specs of uh, OneWeb's capability there. Yeah, and it's exciting because OneWeb, uh, you know, we've seen O3B and just new uh, satellite internet geostationary based, um, but with OneWeb, we're going to see our first large-scale, medium-altitude internet constellation. And they're definitely the furthest along. Orbital ATK came out with their mission extension vehicle. Uh, and not only is this uh, a concept, but it actually has paying customers and is uh, close to being de- deployed and developed. Um, so we've heard satellite servicing as this idea and dream for a long, long time, but it looks like we're actually going to see the first practical demonstrations of that relatively soon. Now, uh, to kind of go back to Gwen Shawa's comments and to why you would do satellite servicing, right now, satellites, we've seen a trend over the past 15 years of bigger satellites with more antennas, with more fuel, with longer lifespans. So now satellites are lasting 10, 15, 20 years of being fully operational. And the price of these satellites has gone up dramatically, uh, $100, $200, 300000000 million for a satellite. And if you build your electronics to be robust enough and it's still providing a good service, uh, it doesn't make sense to have to deorbit or decommission the satellite just when it runs out of fuel. So if you're able to send a mission up of a much smaller craft that's mostly fuel and can refuel the tanks or the example of a mission extension vehicle, just attach a new propulsion system, you can now use the same solar panels, the same antennas, all that expensive mass there, and you've just shipped up extra fuel and you can give your satellites a longer lifespan uh, and generate more revenue. I think it would be kind of fun to come up with the command laws that would need to be rewritten for a satellite that gets one of these pods attached onto it and has a new propulsion system in a new place because uh, everything would, would change. But I think it would be fun to work on that problem, which I'm sure Orbital has been doing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so a little bit more specific about the vehicle itself. Um, some details were shared by Tom Wilson, which is president of Orbital ATK's subsidiary Space Logistics, which is working on this problem. Tom Wilson explained that there are two different vehicles for the servicing stuff. Um, there are mission extension pods and mission extension vehicles. The pods are smaller and um, they just attach and can do add station keeping capability to satellites that already have their attitude control. And that mission extension vehicles can add attitude control as well as station keeping. So even if something's, you know, like your satellite's reaction wheels and tire or something, you could get that functionality back with one of these vehicles. Yeah, and that's a, a fairly common use case. We've seen that with um, some of the NASA observatories where reaction wheels fail and you run out of uh, attitude control uh, fuel. You have perfectly good mirrors, perfectly good sensors and antenna, but you just can't get that pointing accuracy. And if you could add the um, add that capability back, you don't need to send up a new mirror, new optics. It's already up there. And there's a really cool image of the mission robotic vehicle. So they announced three different things. The mission extension vehicle, which is a small spacecraft that can attach to a satellite. But the mission robotics vehicle uses the same solar arrays and general um, satellite bus, but it's got those mission extension pods. And it's got a robotic arm that can go and attach the pod to the satellite to add um, station, re-add station keep, keeping ability. Uh, so it's definitely a really nifty uh, architecture. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, how this works out in practice. They announced Intelsat is the first paying customer. So that's a, a huge deal. Uh, that means there's at least a semblance of a market for the service. And I'm sure Intelsat and Orbital DK have worked really closely together to figure out the attachment points. Drew mentioned the new control laws when you add a new part to a satellite that changes how it reacts. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see if since Orbital ATK looks to be the first mover, are future satellites going to be engineered to support the mission extension pod standard? Or is there going to be kind of a push for a agnostic standard for other companies to use as well? Um, so it's just a really exciting time. Talking about the future, we have uh, a tweet from Blue Origin CEO Bob Smith uh, that everyone wants more volume and there's tremendous reception in the market to these larger payload fairings that we're seeing that will be coming out on New Glenn. So we're trending towards seven meters in diameter. Seven freaking meters. That's huge. It's going to hold a lot of satellites, or some big satellites. We've also been seeing a lot of information come out about BE-4, the engine, and their sales and marketing director or vice president, Clay Maury, said of Blue Origin that at our heart we're a propulsion company and propulsion is a key technology that they you know they need to own that. So I think that with all the stuff that's coming out about the BE4, this is why they're trying to really sell the fact that they are this propulsion company, not just a a, a ride share company or a, a space tourism company. It's really just a doubling down of Blue Origin as a propulsion company. So like 
we've seen concepts of Blue Moon and talk of a cislunar uh, tug and all sorts of those services. And Blue Origin, their uh, mission statement is to get millions of people living and working in space. But again, as we've seen from SpaceX, they're concerned about propulsion. They're concerned about the transportation. We'll build the vehicles to get you off the surface into space and from space to the moon or wherever. But they're going to be leaving a lot of the infrastructure to other companies. So let let the universities or the private companies figure out how to build services and sell them in space. We'll provide the rides. And then they released a, a new test video of the BE4 engine. Um, it's available on their YouTube right now. It was 114 seconds of a 65% power level burn. Um, so this is just super cool. It's got those blue flames. And 114 seconds doesn't sound like a lot when you look at it on paper. But if you sit there and watch the video, you know, that's a that's a decently long burn. <laughs> Yeah, it's about the full duration you might expect from a first stage engine. Um, the SpaceX Merlin first stage is what, 160 seconds uh, or 180 seconds. Um, so it's definitely up there. So it's shorter than if you've ever watched the RS-25 engine tests that are eight minutes long because uh, that's a first and second stage engine. Uh but it's definitely a full-length test. It's not a full power, but it's a full-length test, which is good. And part of the video, one of the reasons the video looks so great, you can see the video at our blog, uh, but it will, uh, they did a changing the mixture ratio. So they changed the amount of liquid natural gas and liquid oxygen they were pumping into the engine, and that changes the uh, stoichiometric ratio. So the amount of energy release changes uh, depending on how much fuel or oxidizer you have, and that makes it different, uh, different brightnesses, different colors. So it's definitely really, really cool to see, uh, and just kind of builds the mystery of why uh, BE4 hasn't been down selected yet compared to the AR1. Uh, they're doing tests like this, these long duration tests, and uh, according to some reports, AR1 has just been shelved and they're not spending any money on it uh why we haven't gotten the official confirmation quick question about changing the mixture ratios of these engines the, from um the tweet here they tested a mixture ratio sweep but the engine claims to be 550,000 pounds of thrust why why test the sweep um and you know can't you analytically calculate the optimal ratio so the optimal no engine uses the optimal ratio uh bec the so the optimal ratio of fuel and oxidizer is the perfect stoichiometric ratio where in a chemistry class if you take two chemicals or two molecules and you look at the atoms inside there and you can create any number of new molecules through combustion and you can make sure that this many atoms of carbon go into the, the products. So you make sure everything's balanced. That is the most efficient release of energy. So I theoretically like, oh, let's do it the most efficient mixture ratio and we'll generate the most amount of heat and the most release the most amount of energy and we'll have the most efficient engine. 
However, it's not as simple as that. Uh, a, the stoichiometric ratio means that the fuel is the hottest that it can be. So sometimes uh, you can't design an engine that can withstand that amount of heat for that long of a time. So you're going to want to tweak that mixture ratio to be cooler so the engine can last longer. Especially with BE4 or with New Glenn where they're trying to reuse it, uh, they might want to make the exhaust cooler so the engine doesn't degrade over time. The second is kind of a more uh, uh, inherent property in engines, but ISP is based on the speed of the exhaust. And if you can reduce the molar mass of the exhaust uh, and have a lighter exhaust, it'll have a faster speed uh, or faster velocity, and so you'll be more efficient. And so you'll actually see in uh, Hydrolox engines a have the much, much, much more hydrogen because it's such a light atom included in the mixture ratio, even though it's not actually combusting with the oxygen because it lowers the average molar mass of the exhaust. And so you have a higher exit velocity. So the engine is more efficient, even though you're not converting all of the potential chemical energy into heat and pressure. So um, I take a Blue Origin's kind of testing a bunch of different mixture ratios because it's well, yeah, a like little bit you easier have to see in the, the real pumps, case. You just spin the knobs a bit and you can see you can go from 1 to 1 or maybe 1 to, to 10 or whatever the range is and get real data. And if you hold the uh, power uh, level the same, uh, you can get great data on how, how hot the engine is, how much thrust you're getting. Uh, and that power rating is, or throttle rating is more about the volume per second uh, that enters the engine. Uh, so you can find those efficiency spots. And it's, uh, there are methods to analytically calculate ideal engines. That's obviously why propulsion engineers make the big bucks. But when you have a functioning engine, you have a functioning test stand, getting the real data, A, to make sure your estimates and calculations are correct, and B, see if the real world acts differently, you can optimize differently, uh, is just something that's nice to be able to do. I just think it's really cool that we get to see um, progress being made by all these companies that were at SATSHOW, and uh, it's very interesting. This year has been a lot of really cool space news coming out, so I can't wait to see once development gets finished on all these projects. I want to see more videos. I want to see more pictures. <laughs> I know it's childish, but uh, that's what really gets me excited. Also, on the side of Blue Origin, uh, there sh should be a new Shepard test scheduled for April 1st, uh, which is coming up. There may or may not be a live stream, but there will most likely be a video released after. Why would they choose April 1st? Because then if they scrub it, like, oh, it can be a, a joke. joke. <laughs> <sighs> All right, so that's all I've got. Um, fun week with Sat Show, and I'm, I'll be listening to uh, taps while watching CRS launch video, <laughs> and uh, I'll have a moment of silence tonight at dinner for that. But it's good to see some more information and inside look at actually how things can go wrong and what NASA thinks of how it should be fixed. Any final thoughts, TJ? I wish there were less space conferences all in the same week because uh, NASA Goddard had a on-campus event this week, which had a bunch of news that there's just too much to cover. 
Yeah. Space those the guys out. You got a, you got 12 months. Like maybe do one a, once one a month, not four in two weeks. All right, that's it for this week. Once again, uh, we'll have notes for this episode on our blog, including links to all these different tweets and resources that we used to make this show. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast for future episodes and tell your friends. You can check out our back catalog of content, including interviews with key space people like Tori Bruno, Chris Hadfield, as well as recent reactions to all the happenings in the space industry. Also, we'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice, or reach out to us via Twitter at RITSpecs. You can also reach out to us via email at specscast.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are of the hosts themselves and do not represent the views or opinions of their employers.